Let me just give you a little introduction to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is the songbook of God's people. It's the melody of the maturing Christian life. I've been arguing the last two weeks in Psalm 1 and 2 that Psalm 1 and 2 serve as the introduction to the book of Psalms. They set the tone. They introduce themes and concepts that will be revisited and reinforced over and over again as we go through the Psalms. Uh, as one commentator writes, Psalm 3, in many ways, is the first psalm because it's the first psalm, if you look at it, it's the first psalm that's ascribed to King David. It's the first psalm that has a title connected with David's life. The first occurrence of the word selah in the psalm. It's the first occurrence of a lament psalm, which is one of the most numerous psalms in the book of Psalms. A lament psalm, just so you know, is one where a psalmist brings a complaint to God. They bring up an issue that's pressing on them, something that's causing their world to shake. And then throughout the psalm, there's almost always a move from lament to praise, from fear to faith, from uh, distress to confidence in God. So the two big themes in the book of Psalms, from Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, is in Psalm 1, there are only two ways to live, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And then in Psalm 2, again, another introduction to the Psalms, it's God king, God's king reigns. God's king reigns. God's anointed king, Jesus Christ, is our protection and hope. And so these two big themes from Psalm 1 and 2, they're present in Psalm 3, but now they're being brought into uh, the concrete, nitty-gritty uh, situations of our daily life. Living a righteous life and trusting in Jesus the king, they're not done in a vacuum. They're not done in a laboratory, in, in clean conditions where everything is going great. No one has a perfectly ordered life. Uh, nobody has no challenges. No, living out those two themes of the book of Psalms, living on the way of the righteous and following God's king, they must be done in our fallen world, in the mess of our lives, with all of its pain, all of its confusion, all of its difficulty. So the question that we should be asking is, how can I live a life of faith when my faith is constantly being attacked uh, by, by friends, by foes, even by my own heart? How can I believe that God's king reigns when my world feels so out of control, when it seems like my enemies are always getting the upper hand over me? Psalm 3 helps us answer those things. So I'll invite you to turn there to the back middle portion, and I'll read for you Psalm 3. Psalm 3, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us again. Father in heaven, thank you for this time that you've given to your people to hear your voice. Uh, we pray that as we, as we consider your words in Psalm 3 uh, that were written by the Spirit through the pen of, of David or another psalmist, Lord, we ask that you would bless this time, that you would speak to us by your Spirit. 
We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to look at the heading for Psalm 3. Um, This is, again, the first psalm that has a heading to it, a a superscription. Uh, Often these headings attribute uh, who the text's author was. Sometimes it's, it's more like associated with a person, so it, it may have been written by David, may have been written by somebody afterwards, but they're trying to associate the psalm with that episode in history. Sometimes the superscription or the heading just tells us where this took place in history, when it was written. Sometimes it gives an introduction, uh, it, it gives an instruction of what kind of music this song is supposed to be played to, what genre it's in, uh, how to use this psalm in worship. And again, you can see the heading given to Psalm 3 is, it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So this is a psalm, a song that the great King David from from thousands of years ago that he sang or he could have sung in one of the lowest moments of his life. The whole saga of King David and his son Absalom, you can find it in the Bible. It's in 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 18. It's worth a read. It's it's an extremely uh, sad and painful story. I'm going to try to summarize it for us uh, just to give some context to Psalm 3. I think it'll help us understand it better. Um, in, In 2 Samuel chapter 13, we meet the great King David who has an older son named Amnon. Amnon has a half brother named Absalom and Absalom has a sister named Tamar. Amnon, in an act of unbelievable wickedness, he assaults and he rapes his half-sister Tamar. And King David, God's anointed king, he's angry at this, but he doesn't enforce justice for Tamar. Amnon is shamed for his wicked act, but he's not punished. He's not dealt with. Absalom, Tamar's brother, sees this injustice and he plots his revenge, but he bides his time. He waits years until the moment comes And he murders Amnon, his half-brother, in cold blood. And then he flees from Israel. Absalom spends some time in exile. And instead of seeking justice on Absalom, David is convinced to bring Absalom back to Israel in peace. Absalom, it seems, he's a changed man. But secretly, he is harboring pride and anger and hatred toward his father David. Absalom begins to woo and to subvert Israel behind David's back until one day... Absalom has gathered enough power behind him, enough muscle to anoint himself as king over Israel instead of his father David. And because of this, David and those who are loyal to him, they're forced to flee from Jerusalem, the city of the king. Absalom's going to kill them all. And the once great king uh, flees into the wilderness. This is a day where David lost everything. He was heckled. He was insulted by his enemies. He was disgraced. He was defeated. Again, God's chosen king on the run. From his own son. How could King David possibly walk in the way of the righteous here? How could he have faith in the goodness of God now in the wilderness? Psalm 3, if you were to, again, put it on a postage stamp in summary, it says, when you're attacked, cry out to the God who saves. This is the theme of Psalm 3. When you're attacked, cry out to the God who saves. We could divide the psalm into three parts, and that's what we'll do. Um, This will be our outline. So this is part one of three. Faith attacked. Faith attacked. David begins his prayer by by telling the Lord his woes, by lamenting. Uh, Look at verses one through two. Uh, You can see that he's, he's talking about the many woes that he has. David doesn't just have one problem. He's got many. He says, many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. 
In 2 Samuel, uh, we read some details about David's uh, flight from Jerusalem. Um, we, we see that David actually had about 600, probably more people who were loyal to him, who left Jerusalem uh, to flee from Absalom. And many of them were, were good soldiers. And that's that number, 600, not too bad. It's more than, you know, more than I have surrounding me if I had to flee from Halifax. But Absalom, we find out, had over 12,000 soldiers at his disposal that night if he wanted to chase down and capture David. So th those odds are, are 20 to 1 against David if it came to a fight. And so David's complaint to God is, I don't have a chance against these enemies. I, I, don't, I don't have a chance. They're too great for me. They're too numerous. And this isn't a fair fight. The story in 2 Samuel, it not only tells us uh, quantitatively how many of David's foes there are, but also the quality of his foes. These foe are his kin. They're not Israel's, you know, pagan neighbors, the Philistines or the Egyptians. No, these are David's own brothers and sisters, his subjects, his fellow Israelites. The foes that are against David are his closest friends and advisors. They desert David to join Absalom. It's his own son, Absalom, a child that he nurtured and raised and cared for and prayed for and held. And now he's hell-bent on killing his own father. Not only that, but we see that one of David's uh, foes from, from the context in the story of 2 Samuel is David's own sin. David's own pride, his laziness, his, his ambition, David's own sinful heart that refused to punish his son Absalom or Amnon got him into this mess. And now David's own heart accuses him and attacks him, saying, David, this is all your fault. You did this, David. Maybe you've been betrayed by someone close to you, someone who is supposed to have your best interests at heart, a close friend, a family member. They've done evil to you. Perhaps the deepest wounds that you've suffered come from somebody in the church, someone who, 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 a pastor, or someone who bore the name of Christ that abused you or manipulated you. Or perhaps you are the abuser. You have done something horrific and unspeakable. You've done wicked to others, and your guilty heart will not let you forget it. And this is what this rogues gallery of foes, both quantitatively numerous, both qualitatively close. Look at verse 2. This is what these voices are saying together. There is no salvation for him in God. They're saying, God has given up on you. He is not for you. Look at your life. Look at the mess that you've made of it. You're toast. And guess what? You deserve it. God will not help you out of this. You made your bed, and now it's time to lie in it. This is faith attacked. When your past comes crashing into your present and threatens to ruin your future. Our summary of Psalm 3, remember, is when you're attacked, cry out to the God who saves. And, and this is a reminder for us, a mental cue. This is not if you are attacked, but when you are attacked. This is a life that's filled with sorrow. An attack on your faith is coming if it's not already here. Suffering and attacks on your faith are not to be something that Christians think of as unusual. Psalm 3 and songs like it are songs that have been sung for thousands of years by God's people because guess what? God's people suffer. They have been attacked much and we've been attacked so much that we need songs for such occasions. When we get bad news, when you get bad news, when something unexpected or painful happens to you, we're often completely thrown off, aren't we? 
We're undone. Like, what is going on? This is not the way life is supposed to be. How could this happen to me? So we grumble, we complain, we pity ourselves, or we try to distract ourselves. We go shopping, we, you know, we get on Instagram, we numb the pain, we go on vacation, or we just spend whatever dollar value we think will resolve the situation. But this is something we often don't do. We don't sing this psalm or, or a psalm like it. We don't cry out to the God who saves. We don't turn to God or look to God. And part of the hope of this series going through the Psalms is that the language of the Psalms would begin to sink into your bones, that you'd know that God himself gives you the words of this Psalm and ones like it because he wants them to be ready on your lips for when an attack comes. When that happens, you've got a prayer on your lips, you've got a song in your heart that God's Spirit can use to steal you, to lift you up. So if you're suffering right now, if you're under attack right now, your faith, whether your own guilty heart or those around you, print off this psalm. Keep keep a copy of it in your back pocket. Uh, Print it, put it on your bathroom mirror, stick it on your computer screen, tape it on the back of your cell phone, whatever it takes. I I would recommend a, a tattoo of some sort, but I'm not sure where you're on that. But have it ready for you when your faith is attacked, when you begin to doubt God's goodness, because that is gonna happen, friends. Um, you see at the end of verse 2, that word selah. Uh, no one, if somebody tells you they know exactly what it means, don't believe them. No, no one exactly knows what selah means, but most scholars agree that it's a musical notation of some sort uh, for, for singing this psalm. And it gives a moment of pause, perhaps a musical interlude, a harp solo of some sort. And, and this gives those who are singing this psalm a moment to reflect on just what's been said. So this is a moment for you to pause and to reflect What do your foes accuse you of? What is the voice in the background of your mind telling you when they say, there is no hope for you? There is no salvation for God for you. Have you begun to believe those voices that God has given up on you? Take a moment to think. So that's part one. Faith attacked. Part two, faith protected. Look down at verses three and four. Again, our our summary, when you're attacked, cry out to the God who saves. The psalmist turns from looking at his many foes and he, he pivots to look to God. His enemies are many. They're strong and they're deadly, but they're not like God. Again, this is the pivot point of the psalm. Uh, The moment, this is the moment when things begin to change for David. It's the TSN turning point. Uh, It's not, and that moment doesn't happen when his problems are all fully resolved and taken care of. That pivot moment isn't even when his foes' voices are silenced and David is feeling much better. Rather, it's right here in the middle of trouble and pain when when all of these voices are accusing him of what he's done. It's here in the mess of it that God protects his faith. Uh, Look at verse 3. David recognizes something of God when he looks to him, when he cries out to him. It's that God is a shield surrounding David. That is, it's God's good pleasure. It is what God does to protect and guard his people. Shielding, uh, shielding people who are being attacked isn't just something that God does. It's something that he is. It's who he is. He is a shield and refuge for any who run to him when they're in trouble. Next, look at verse 3. David sees that God himself is his glory. 
Kings like David had a lot of glory. They had riches. Uh, they had influence. They had servants. They had chariots and cities and armor. But those all can be lost. And David turns from these things. He stops looking at the things that he's lost or that are threatened, and he looks to God, and he calls him my glory. Maybe you have a lot of things in your life that you think are a protection of some sort, uh, that, that are your glory, your career, your reputation. Those things can be lost. To focus on God is to make him your glory, the only person that cannot be taken away, the only thing that can be unaffected. We often have an expression of self-confidence, lift up your chin, don't feel so bad, but we see what David says. He says that God is not only his glory, but the lifter of his head. That's, a, that's an expression of confidence in the Lord. David knows that it's not confidence in himself and in his abilities that saves when your faith is attacked, but it's confidence in God. It is God lifting up your head. It's not your ability to hold on to control in your life, but rather God's ability to hold on to you that matters in the end. This is faith being protected. God himself shielding and lifting up David in the middle of an attack. Um, there's a pastor, a theologian, he's, he's, he's uh, passed away now, a guy named A.W. Tozer, and he once wrote this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? What comes spontaneously? What comes quickly? What images? What feelings? Does your mind run to God being a shield, your glory, the lifter of your head? Or do you imagine when you come to God, when you're under attack, when you're feeling guilt and shame, that his arms are folded, his foot is tapping impatiently, and he's saying, again? You're coming back to me again for this? For help and for forgiveness? Really? What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. David's enemies, those closest to him, even David's own heart, they were telling him, David, you're too sick, you're too diseased for God to help you. But this is what David must believe. This is what he must think. When he cries out to God, he's crying out to the great physician whose glory it is to help sick sinners. When David's enemies tell him, David, you're too far gone. You've ruined everything for God to love you. But when David cries out, he must believe that he's calling out to the Father who, who charges into the distance to bring back lost sons and daughters. When David's sinful heart, when his enemies tell David, you're too lost for God to find you. You've dug a pit too deep for yourself. David must believe that he cries out to the great shepherd whose glory it is to leave the 99 to seek out the one lost sheep. Friends, when your faith is being attacked, we cry out to God who, whose joy, whose love it is to protect those who run to him. You see, verse 4 ends with another selah. This is another interlude, another moment for pause and reflection. And so this is the question. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Do you have confidence that he is your shield, your glory, and the lifter of your head? Selah. Okay, so part one, part two, faith attacked, faith protected. Finally, part three, faith matured, faith matured. 
Let's remember the context of Psalm 3, how the psalmist uh, wants us to understand the placement of this psalm. David is on the run. He's fleeing from his son Absalom. He's hiding in holes. He's, he's wondering if Absalom's forces will catch him and, and crush him. Again, that 20 to 1 odds against him. And after crying out to God, entrusting himself to God as a shield, what does David do? Look at verses 5 and 6. David lies down and he sleeps. He rests. This is a piece that passes understanding. This is a piece that actually doesn't make any sense. Uh, Of the 600 men around him looking at David sleeping, they might have wanted to say, David, (laughs) you've got some real issues, man. Like, your son is out to get you. Uh, David, this is your fault. You should probably be losing sleep, not resting so peacefully. But they see David resting and sleeping. He has peace because God is his shield. He's his glory, the lifter of his head. I wonder what causes you to lose sleep at night. What, ta- what takes away your peace? Is it deadlines at school? Is it trouble in your marriage? Is it, is it a gnawing guilt because of things that you've done? Is it, is it a loneliness? Is it replaying in your mind over and over again what someone said to you or, or perhaps what you said to somebody else? If anyone had reason to lose sleep, it was David. David had so much to fear. If he was found, he'd be killed. He was being hunted in the wilderness like an animal. He might never regain the throne that God himself gave him. David had much to feel guilt about, much to feel sorrow about. He was a failed father. He failed to protect his own daughter. He failed to discipline his two sons. He failed to be a good example to Absalom. But the peace that David experiences, even with this you know, cacophonous um, noise around him, shouts of fear and guilt, both externally and internally, this is amazing. And this is faith matured, an internal peace from God. Again, how is your sleep? Are you able to rest in God? When troubles surround you, Do you have peace when you cry out to God? I'm asking not to shame you, but to invite you into this. That you would begin to entrust yourself to God who is a shield. This is where God wants to bring you, to rest. So would you trust him? Would you pray for him? Would you ask him to mature your faith for you to see who he is? When you look down at verse 7, you see that that, um, David he shoots out two punchy, quick demands of God. This isn't typically the way we speak to God. Arise, O Lord. Get up. Save me, O my, o my God. But again, th- th- these are not just the words of David. These are God's words given to his people for prayer. God loves prayers like this. Do something, God. I need you now. Get up. Save me. When we know what God is like, uh, that, that his delight, his joy is when sinners and sufferers come to him. These prayers, they don't sound as impatient as they may at first. Again, a mother isn't troubled when she hears her baby calling for her. She's saying, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming. An ambulance isn't bothered when you call 911. That's why they have that phone number. That's why they have vans with sirens on them. It's so they can get to you quickly to help you. And so when you pray a prayer like this, when you cry out, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, you're asking God to do the very thing that he delights to do. He loves to save and to help those in need. When your faith is attacked, when you are attacked, cry out to the God who saves. 
If you look at verse 7, you see David uses two more expressions to ask God to, to put away his enemies, uh, both to strike their cheeks and to break their teeth. Now, these sound, of course, a bit harsh. As Canadians, we don't look kindly on striking or breaking teeth. But these are, again, the, the, this is a song, this is a poem, and this is a, a, a really profound poetic expression uh, where David is asking God to deprive his enemies of strength and power to attack him. If you think of a lion, a lion's roar and his teeth are pretty dangerous, pretty intimidating. And, and David is asking God to cause his most deadly enemies to lose their voice. To, to, be, to be made quiet, to be made powerless from swallowing him. Remember, I think a very good argument can be made that one of the chief enemies that David has in this instance is his own heart. Uh, David recognizes that he needs God to step into his own heart to deal with his pride, to strike his pride on the cheek, to, to break the teeth of his sin and disobedience. He's inviting God into his life to defang his own heart and so to save David from himself. That's a good prayer to pray if you find that your heart is betraying you. God, strike me on the cheek. Break the teeth of my sin. Finally, look down at verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. David's faith was attacked, it was protected, and now matured as he says this, as he confesses this. Salvation belongs to you, O God. It is yours. It comes from you. You are its only source. It will not come from another quarter. You alone own salvation and rescue. And this is a point that he adds to it. And when you save, when your salvation comes, O God... Your people are blessed. Your people are blessed. Absalom's rebellion eventually ended. David was restored to the throne, um, and, and God's people were blessed for it. It wasn't just David who enjoyed the blessings of God's salvation. All of Israel was stabilized uh, with David leading things. When God works his salvation for his anointed, God's people are blessed. And this is true of David, but listen, this is especially true of Jesus Christ, of God's chosen king. When you read Psalm 3, you know that this is a song of Jesus. This is a song that Jesus could have sang. Jesus, too, had many foes, and, and not just distant enemies, not just the Romans, but his own people. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, and then he was quickly abandoned by all the others. Unlike David and unlike us, though, Jesus had no internal sin with which he could blame these circumstances on. He was the only innocent man who ever lived. He had done nothing wrong to deserve this. Yet while on the cross, his enemies mocked him and he said, there is no salvation for him in God. God has abandoned him. Jesus, you are alone. But Jesus entrusted himself to God's mercy. He cried out to God. He committed his spirit to God in his death. And three days later, Jesus Christ, God's anointed king, experienced God's deliverance from the dead. Jesus' deliverance, though, from the dead is not just good news for Jesus. It is blessing for his people. It is good news for us. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Because Jesus, the anointed king, has been delivered from all of his enemies, he can extend God's salvation and help to anyone who cries out to him and trusts in him. Jesus has faced down the worst enemies, sin and death. He has faced betrayals that you could not imagine. And he's cried out to God in the very weakest and most desperate moments possible. And he did so for you. Jesus went through the horrors of hell so that God's salvation and his blessing could be for his people, for Jesus' people, those who trust in him. So will you go to him now expecting salvation? Will you confess your sins, your internal sin? Will you lament to him your external enemies and trust that Jesus, who defeated death itself, was delivered from death, is willing and able to shield you from the worst enemies you have? When you're attacked, Will you cry out to God who saves? This is what God loves to do. He is not bothered by it. He is not inconvenienced by it. This is who he is. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he saves now. He offers his salvation to you through his son, Jesus. So now may the words of Psalm 3 sink into your bones so that when your faith is attacked, You've got a song to sing. May what comes to your mind when you think about God be his delight to give his mercy and rescue to sinners and sufferers like you. May you cry out to God and be given the gift of sweet rest, even as troubles surround you. And may you know that Christ's deliverance from death and the grave means blessing to his people, to you as you cry out to him the one who saves. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that this is who you are, that you delight to save those who cry out to you. I pray that you'd give your people voice, that this would become their song. We would feel uh, um, peace even as we cry out our complaint to you. Lord, for, for those who don't know you, who, who think that their, their enemies are few and their problems are slight, that you are not necessary. Father, I pray that, as we sang, that, that the waves that you send into our lives would, would push them onto the rock of Christ, uh, the only stable place for them. Lord, we pray for those who, who do know you and trust you, that they would never think themselves so strong uh, that they don't need you that every day they would deepen their trust in the God who saves. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.